You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Welcome, music lovers, to Modern Musicology. I am here with my friends, Stephanie Seymour. Hello, everybody. Anthony Williams. Howdy. And Rob Levy. Sup. And today we have a very special guest. We are joined by author and documentary filmmaker David Leaf, author of the new book, God Only Knows the Story of Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys, and the California Myth, which came out September 2022 from Omnibus Press. David, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm, I'm doing great and good to see you. So, David, with so many things that you're involved in and with such a prolific career that you have been doing, uh, I was curious what your creative process is just for, for projects. How do you jump in and sort of go? Uh, I guess the best way to describe it is that I'm a storyteller. And so for for this uh, this book, the question was, what story am I going to tell? And in the world uh, we now live in, where you can go to the web and see endless content about Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys, you can go to Wikipedia and see a page for every album they've made, every single uh, endless links to articles, videos, audio. I, I thought, what story can I tell that w- would be of interest to, uh, the, to the reader? And it was kind of obvious. The only story I could tell was the story of, of what I did with Brian, because no one else knows that story except me and Brian and a few of our close friends. And so that became my, 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 guiding, my guidepost, if you will, in terms of, 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 of what to write. Um, I remember getting an email from a, from an old friend in England who was halfway through the, I don't know, he was on maybe on chapter 29 or something. He said, I feel like I'm reading your diary. Yeah. And, and, and I wrote back, I said, is that good or bad? And he said, I'll let you know when I'm finished. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but that's really what it had to be. It had to be uh, personal because, you know, when I first started to write about Brian and the Beach Boys, I was a journalist who was kind of on a righteous mission, if you will. And now I'm writing about the subject as an elder statesman, looking back on on all of these experiences and and telling as much as I can, uh, Rob, to to finish answering your question, uh, that doesn't cross the line of of our friendship. I remember interviewing a lot of his friends uh, through the years, and, and they were always very careful to, to focus on his artistry. If it affected the music and how it was being created, then it was fair game to talk about. So those, those were how I approached it. And honestly, it's a subject that I, I love writing about. So it really was, I won't say it was easy, but it was painless. David, that kind of segs into my first question that I, that I really wanted to ask you, which it is sort of an overall aspect of the book. Um, because your book is sort of in three parts. I mean, it's 1978, the first, you know, publishing um, of it. 
And in, in 1985, you had a section where you were, it seemed like you were trying to self-analyze the way you had written about certain aspects of the Beach Boy stories and Brian's story. And I just want to read this quote from the book where you say, unfortunately, I missed a key subtlety in Brian's relationship to the band. While he may feel that they are an obstacle to his artistic expression, I misunderstood this to mean that Brian didn't want the group to exist. As one friend of Brian's recently explained, it's not that Brian doesn't want to be a beach boy. He just wants to run the show the way he did in the old days. And then in this updated 2020-22 version, you have like even more insights and thoughts like how Mike Love maybe deserves more songwriting credit than he originally got and how Carl's voice, you know, contributed so much to the magical sound of the Beach Boys. So you have like more clarity and like a lifetime perspective on it all. Um, and that there's more than one point of view, more than one perspective. Your perspective is just one. So I just want to know, like, do you, do you feel a certain sense of peace and closure in writing this third chapter? Or, or do you feel like maybe in 10 years you're going to be like, okay, I have more to say? Oh, in 10 years there will be more to yeah. say. Um, I, I feel really at, at peace, to, to use your word, mm -hmm. because this book didn't exist in the marketplace for so long. You, one couldn't get it. Um, the, the update in, in this edition is more than half the length of the original book. So, you know, the cliche is two books in one. <laughs> but, but a lot of people didn't have the original book. And, and at eBay, it was selling for hundreds of dollars. So it felt like the way to do it was to book in the original book, keep the 1985 update and go from there. Mm -hmm. And um, there's, there's an extensive author's note that you referred to in which I'm reflecting back yeah. on the original book. But the original book is essentially unchanged. I mean, I went through right. it and if there were typos and misspellings. Um, I fixed them. But, but overall, I do feel at peace because this is a celebration of what's happened uh, at the end of the first book, at the end of the second book. There really, there really was no hope. Yeah. I mean, there, there was not an optimistic note to be sounded if one was looking at the circumstances realistically. And, and I sort of have an optimistic Ooh. note at the end of the 85 update. But now it's, my God, look what's happened yes. since 1935. And, and that's also, to get back to what Rob was asking, that's the focus of what I wanted to write about. I didn't want to write about all, all the continuing internal struggles and the lawsuits and all that. That's, that's just not that important. What matters is what music do we have? What tours did Brian go on? What were the events and the movies and everything that really speak to the guy who I, I set out to write about where in the original book, the first line is, this is the story of Brian Wilson. Yeah. In the process of writing this book, the revisions on this book, and from the time that you first wrote the book, the you touched on this a little bit, the ability to do research is like insane because you've got like access to like, you know, digitally cleaned up video and audio. You've got like way more archived photos and stuff online. Has this advance in technology since you first wrote the book approached or changed your approach to writing uh, this book or making other projects, but also how did it play into making this new version of the book? Well, it's embarrassing to admit uh, on, a, on a show called Modern Musicology, uh, and as I'm a professor at the, at the UCLA School of Music, and one of my classes is in the musicology department, the web was really a, 
a fact checking place for me where, where I could confirm my memories. Um, the research that I did for this edition, unlike the first and second edition where I was interviewing others, I was primarily writing about firsthand experience. So I didn't have to, uh, who was I going to ask? I was asking myself. Now that said, I, I talked to key people who've been around all these years, like Darian Sahanaja, like Ray Lawler, like, like Jerry Weiss, who also shared in this, this journey the, the past 30 plus years. So uh, there was a great story that I wanted to tell about the first time Brian came to my apartment. And I only knew half of it. I only knew what happened when he got there. I didn't know what brought him to my apartment. So I interviewed Harvey Kubernick, the, the journalist, to, uh, who, who at the time was Melody Maker, uh, Melody Maker's West Coast correspondent. I said, why did you bring him to my apartment that night? Um, because I had never written about that night, but now that I'm writing about it, I needed to know more. So, so, the, so the, the, the research was, I won't say it was minimal, but it, it was, I probably have 60 boxes of stuff that I could have gone through and, and detailed information that's readily available to anybody who needs to know it. I didn't do that. I'll do that in 10 years, Steph. <laughs> that <laughs> um, info is coming. <laughs> I mean, you know, one of the things that, that uh, I remembered was that my, there was a picture of Brian and I at, in 1977 at Brothers Studio. It's the first time we were ever in a picture together, and I was looking everywhere for it. Well, I stumbled across it about a month ago, which was way too late to get into this book. Uh, but it's such a complicated story. And you know, people have asked me, why did why did you retitle it "God Only Knows"? Mm. So there's obvious reasons. One, it's one of, one of, if not the greatest song Brian's ever composed. Two, it's Paul McCartney's favorite song of all time, and he graciously sent a, a lovely quote to open the book. But maybe the biggest reason is, if you ask me a question, the answer might often be "God Only Knows." Yeah, I'm just still floored that like. When you said, "Oh, Brian Wilson came over to my apartment," I'm still like, "Okay." <laughs> well, he didn't. He didn't come over to my apartment. He was brought to my apartment. Right, yeah. And Harvey Kubernick, when he told me the story of what happened with, you know, he's he's parking near Rodney Bingenheimer's apartment, Rodney on the Rock. He's going over there because Rodney always had the new English import 45s before anyone else. So he was going over there just to listen to records, and he sees somebody weaving a pedestrian weaving in the middle of Sunset Boulevard and he runs out there and pulls the guy to the curb. And then he sees it's Brian who he knew. And, and Brian goes, I took too many reds. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's just such a bizarre circumstance. And, and what I've really come to, to understand, it sounds crazy to say it, but everything about this story sounds crazy. But I, I believe that Brian has had guardian angels throughout throughout his adult that life. That doesn't sound crazy. And and that night, Harvey was one of them. Mm -hmm. Linda Ronstadt was one of them one time, as, as I tell this story in the book. Debbie Kyle was a guardian angel for many, many years. Melinda Wilson is a guardian angel. I mean, she's been with him now. They've been married 30 years almost. Right. It, it's, it's, it's hard to understand unless you're there how intimidating he is, 
how strong he is, how willful he is, and how often he doesn't want to do what you think he should do. <laughs> yeah, that that's um, interesting. I mean, part, part of it is, you know, I agree. I think he, it seems like he's had good people that have surrounded him to help him out of certain situations, seemingly throughout his life. But one one thing you said in the book was, in a in a way, he he uh, withdrew from the world and let in a way that let certain bad elements come into his orbit. Um, well, and, he, start, he started with bad elements. Yeah, I mean, he starts with with an abusive father, and we right. have to give Murray credit for what he did. The Wilson home was filled with music. When he recognized Brian's talents, he made a music room for him. He bought him a reel-to-reel tape recorder. Without Murray, there's no record contract. Yeah, definitely. But the abuse, again, all, all of these things are, you know, unless we were on Rocky and his friends and we can get in with Sherman and Peabody into the Wayback Machine and, and go back there and actually observe what happens, how do you know what the damage is? Mm-hmm. But right. the good news for us as listeners is that Brian was abused because the pain that he felt is what he expressed in the music that we love. And if he had had a, you know, a Leave it to Beaver upbringing, would we have gotten in my room in the warmth of the sun and I just wasn't made for these times? And I have to think the answer is no. Probably yeah. not. I mean, the pain brought out music. Um, and you, you also said that it's sort of a cruel irony, irony that the person who has brought so much joy to the world through his music has found so little personal happiness. But that was back in the 85 revision. Do you think now, all these years later, he's gotten more personal happiness he, he definitely has gotten more personal happiness. Somebody asked me, is Brian happy? And I said, I don't think great artists are supposed to be happy. <laughs> I, I think they can have happy moments. And Brian certainly, in my experience, has had a lot of happy moments. It could be digging into a steak or wolfing down a piece of cheesecake or performing Smile. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a long litany of moments that are kind of unbelievable that they happen. Um, where I know for sure, because I witnessed it, there was happiness. But he's, I don't, I don't think, like he's, he's been taking psychotropic drugs since 76. Right. There's something there that's not, again, I hate to use the word normal. That's not, that's, that's not typical. And, and so he has, he's an extraordinarily strong person to have survived what he did, you know, by all accounts, I would I expected him to die 40 years ago. Hmm. And here he is. He's 80. I I mean, I think this is an unanswered question. You, you there maybe you just nobody has an answer for. But is there any answer to the question of why Dr. Landy was brought back into his life in 82 and why he was able to stay for 10 more years? I mean, I always keep thinking, like, couldn't anyone find a good therapist in L.A., you know? <laughs> like, well, so, so Steph, it's, it's, a, it's a really good question. The, the, the first question is, why was he brought in in 75? Yeah. The answer is, Marilyn Wilson said, I knew Brian was going through hard times, and I hired Dr. Landy, who re- reputedly was successful with celebrities, like Rod Steiger was his famous patient. Okay, in a city full of great psychiatrists who don't deal with fame, was that the right choice then? 
So Brian, Dr. Landy is, I hate to use the word doctor in front of his name. Yeah. Landy is brought in in, in, in 75. And, it, it, and towards the end of 76, he's fired by the Beach Boys. So that raises the question, why was he there in the first place? Was he there so that Brian would be getting better or was he was there for the Beach Boys benefit? If he was there for Brian getting better, then why are they firing him? Hmm. Why do they have the right to fire him? So the second time he comes in, Brian's now divorced, as Debbie Kyle Levitt talks about briefly in the book, uh, in the update, she was concerned about what was going on in Brian's life. She had asked me for a list of psychiatrists. I had gotten one. She had given it to one of the people who was looking after Brian at that time. And he said, we don't need your lists, kind of. Oh. We don't need no stinking badges. <laughs> hmm. And so in 82, when, when I, I know I went to Brian, we went to Brian's house um, in the fall of 82. And he was, if, if he wasn't going to die that week, he was going to, he would, he, it was clear he was going to die within the next year based on how he was living. At least it was to, to us. And within weeks, Dr. Landy was hired again, this time by the Beach Boys. He was hired and given complete control. One could write an entire book about those years. That's that's not for me. That's for 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 somebody who wants to to delve into sadness and madness and live there full time. Uh, I, I spent enough time around it to, to where I devoted a chapter to those years because it's essential. Brian talks about those years. He looks back. He says it was like I was in prison for nine years. So why was Brian in prison? which is, I think is your question, Stefan, and why did nobody release him from prison? And why did, Melinda, why did Melinda Ledbetter, who became Melinda Wilson, have to lead the charge to get rid of this guy? Right. And the answer is, why was he there? Well, he was there, Landy was there to save Brian's life. Could anybody else have done it? I don't know the answer to that question. Again, Brian, Brian was in bad shape and they brought in the, the drill sergeant of all time. Why did he remain is, is your question. And yeah. why was he so involved in the record making and, and causing so much turmoil and, and have such tremendous control over who could see Brian? And it goes to what happened the first time. Landy was like, okay, you want me back. This time I, you can't fire me. This time I want complete control. Right. And you're like essentially having to tiptoe around him to, or with him to try to get your projects done. And, and everybody. Well, I, I, was, I wasn't trying to get any projects done. I was, you know, in those days, I was, I was just, things would happen. Yeah. I would find myself in the same place as Brian. Mm -hmm. And it, it was like, he could talk to me for a minute or so, but there was always somebody with a camera. It, it was, it was disturbing. It, it was, it was heartbreaking. Then when I was working for Warner Brothers Records, when they, when Brian was making his first solo album, it was hideous what what was going on on a daily basis. However, if we're going to look back fairly at, at those years, if anyone else had become Brian's manager slash psychologist, if it had been anyone else, Brian never would have made a solo record. He would never have had a solo career because... The Beach Boys were paying the freight. Yeah. And they weren't interested in Brian having a solo career. They wanted Brian to make Beach Boys records. Right. That's where they got their money from, from the record companies. 
So we have to give Landy his credit there. And then, as somebody referred to it, when he when he had Brian go out on a date with Melinda, he essentially planted his own Trojan horse in his world. Because once Melinda saw what was really going on, it was like, this is terrible. What the heck is wrong with this guy? Why is he allowed to do this? And without without her determination to get rid of him, I don't know what would have happened. It almost feels like there were just a lot of conflicting interests. And at some point in that relationship between Wilson and Landy, it became, it stopped being constructive and became more <laughs> toxic, right? And I, I, I feel like in yes. this day and age where we talk about things like conservatorships in relation to artists, and at what point does it need to continue that really strikes a chord with me with what was going on or what seems to have been going on between Wilson and Landy. Well, it, it, it was, and I remember it was almost, we wanted to open bottles of champagne the day that Landy lost his license to practice. What, what we didn't realize was what was going to come next was this new company called Brains and Genius in which they were going to be partners. That was baffling. I had no idea about that when I until I read this book. I just didn't even know that. And, that was incredible. So, yeah. So so now it's a really difficult circumstance. It's easy. I shouldn't say it's easy. But the attorney general was contacted by a lot of people about what a bad guy this was. And he had his license pulled. Now, how do you stop a business partnership? And Anthony, you're, you're, you're right. Nowadays... Look how long it took for for Britney Spears to be freed. It was a battle to end that partnership. You know, fortunately, it, it did end. And the parallel I really see is this was initially an arrangement that was brought into place to save someone from themselves, for better or for worse. But this person, whether it's Landy in the case of Wilson or I alluded to Britney Spears and you mentioned her explicitly, her father, they just kind of seem to get their claws in and just dig and hang on for yeah. dear life. Well, that's that's the story of fame. People are surrounded by bloodsuckers. It ha- this happens all the time. It's just a matter of degree. And this was obviously an extreme. But you, the first part of your question was saving Brian. And one could ask the question, did he want to be saved? Or had he given up? Had he decided it's over and I'm just going to eat myself to death. I don't know the answer to that question, but that certainly seemed to be the path he was on. And to Steph's point, after a couple of years, it should have been, okay, I've I've done my job. He's now in good condition and he's, he's physically well, he's exercising, he's taking his medication. We don't need Dr. Landy anymore. Right. Done. Your job is done. (laughs) Your your job is done. But the people who had the power to stop it didn't have the power because they had given him the power. The Beach Boys incorporated, if you will. And And I think what what an ethical psychologist or psychiatrist should have done was to step back and say, my job here is done. Call me if you ever find that I'm needed again. And that's very clearly not what happened. Well, Anthony, if if we start talking about ethics and and morality and look at the world, we're going to be here all afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) Very true. Especially in the music business. Well, the the world. 
Yeah, yeah. definitely. I mean, it's you know, yeah. How how how, how, come, how is it possible that people are going to going to bed hungry? You know, given given the abundance of food that there is in the world, so ethics and morality, as Steph just said, in the music business, is is a, is a, is a tricky tightrope. I've worked with wonderful, wonderful people like Lenny Warrenker and and David Anderley, who who you know Herb Albert at his record company, they really cared about artists. Just make the record you want to make. And we'll do our best to make it successful. And if it isn't, well, go make another one. And Peter Frampton's a perfect example of that. The guy made four solo albums in a row, yeah. no success. And then finally Frampton comes alive and 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 pays back in in, in spades the, the, the faith that AM had in him. Uh with, with Brian, um whoever was around Brian made it impossible to work with him. Because they were so difficult to deal with, and and Anthony, I, you know, I the, the original book, you know, I wrote it from a self righteous point of view, like what is going on here? And as I wrote write in the author's note, who was I to take this moral stance? What right did I have in this in this world to to take that stance? But it's it's what I it's the stance I took, and it's the reason Brian's friends trusted me. And ultimately, it's the reason Brian trusted me. You know, speaking of friends, I, I was really intrigued and always have been sort of by the friendship that developed between Paul McCartney and Brian and just a, a very positive friendship because I think that they obviously creatively inspired each other to get better and better at their craft. Um, and you you were witness, obviously, to some of this firsthand. I mean, I do, you obviously got him to do a beautiful forward in, in your book, a note. You want to talk a little bit about that friendship um, because you well, witnessed some of it? You know, they had a, they had a can you top this com- competitive thing going on, 65, 66, into 67. And I think the end of that allowed Paul to be a real friend to Brian. They were, they were friendly competitors up until then, but... But in the wake of everything that Brian went through and Paul being the, the exception to the rule that you referred to in terms of the music business, that the, the, the morality and ethics that he conducts himself and his business and his family life, he, he is, it's not, it's not that he's an easy person to work for. It's, it's more that he makes his music and, and you're going to do everything you can to make his music heard in the world. That's your job. Nobody's ever been better publicly in the history of the entertainment world, I think, than Paul McCartney at being who he is and living up to the, the notion of all you need is love that his, his, his dear partner had, had come up with. And, and I think, you know, in, in starting in the 90s, um, as, as, as Brian was let out of jail, Paul and he had a number of moments together that were were magical you know they didn't go on two-week vacations together it wasn't that kind of a friendship it wasn't like hey hey brian we're going to be cruising the 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 caribbean why don't you come on on the ship that's that's not the relationship they had paul just was always happy to see him in a way that um you know it's it's funny I, i was with brian a couple of times when he was talking 
with Paul, I don't think he was Sir Paul yet, but, but, but <laughs> Brian would end the conversation. And, you know, I don't think there was anyone else on the planet who would ever end a conversation with, with, with Paul McCartney. It's like, <laughs> we're here. He's talking to us. We have his attention. Can, can I watch this tennis match just for a little bit longer? It's, you know, <laughs> It's, it's Federer and, and Nadal, and it's like this is pretty cool that I'm I'm standing next to it, and 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 Brian was like, okay, okay, Paul, I'm gonna go get dinner now, and it's like, no, we can get dinner later, <laughs> but, but you know, it's it it was there were just magical moments. Yeah, and it seems like Paul showed very much compassion and care and kindness for Brian, and that Brian appreciated and knew that somehow absolutely you know. absolutely sir george martin same way they, they they there wasn't anything they wouldn't do for brian when when presented with the opportunity i mean they they just they, they loved what he created because once upon a time they had competed with it and one of my favorite sentences of, of sir george is that pet sounds was our attempt to equal sergeant pepper which is an admission that we didn't um, goodness knows what would have happened if Brian had finished smiling in 67. Um, we don't want to play that woulda, shoulda, coulda <laughs> game because uh, there's no, there's nothing to gain there. But when um, Sir George said, if I have to select one living genius in popular music, it's Brian Wilson. Yeah. That's staggering. So who, who is Paul McCartney actually looking up to, or at least looking at as a peer? Stevie Wonder, Bob Dylan, Paul Simon, Jimmy Webb. I mean, you know, there's a, it's a handful of, of, of people who, who are at that level, not just of creative success, but who kept reinventing themselves and raising the bar on their work. And Brian and Paul together, it's, it's such a, a, an amazing combination. They were born two days apart. <laughs> and, you know, one time Brian called Paul, who, Brian's two days younger, and he called him Old Man Pablo. And it's like nobody is going to get away with calling Paul Old Man. I mean, it just isn't going to happen. But but Brian Brian could there, there was a, a genuine love of, of of Brian for Paul and and, and vice versa. And and yet many years ago in, in the nineties, I I was kind of I wasn't Brian's official publicist, but I'd be getting contacted by Mojo or whatever magazine wanted some information. And one of them wanted a Brian's top 10 favorite singers of all time list. So I asked him and he did it pretty quickly. And, and I said, Paul's not on there. He goes, no, he says, he says, Paul's a versatile singer, but he's, he's not on the top 10 greatest. Cause he had John on the wow. list. Yeah. Oh Yeah. But that's an interesting way to think about it. Paul is an unbelievably versatile singer who can sing Little Richard and he can sing Faw Dylan and he can sing a beautiful ballad. But he doesn't have just one voice. John kind of had one unbelievable voice. David, you very briefly mentioned Smile. And one of the things I wanted to talk today was uh, about today was your own involvement in mm -hmm. 2004's Brian Wilson Presents Smile. Um, I'm going to out myself as the youngest one here. I was 16 when that came out. And I, I grew up on a diet of 60s music thanks to my parents. I was very familiar with the Beach Boys. And I was 
somewhat aware at the time as a 16 year old living in London about the kind of legend of the unfinished album. And I think personally, I think that that was an absolute magnum opus of a piece of work in 2004. And knowing you kind of worked on the concert that came with it, I believe you were even somewhat involved the first time a song from the Unfinished Sessions was was played in, I think, 2000 uh, with Brian on a piano. Just what was it like to be involved in that? Do you see that as a huge personal accomplishment? What's your kind of lens on that? Well, you know, in, in 71, almost my age, but in 1971, when I first read about Smile and I first heard Surf's Up, and it was in, in kind of a very selfish way. I want to hear the rest of this music. This is this is unbelievable. I've never heard anything like this. And I was also very troubled by what I was reading in, in Rolling Stone magazine about Brian. And I felt he was being exploited in this interview to sell a new album. And my roommate and I became incredibly obsessed with all of this. And I was troubled. I was studying journalism. It was during the height of the anti-war movement and where we believed we could change the world. And my roommate said, well, why don't you do something about it? I was like, okay, and, and I'm gonna to move to California and write a book about Brian, become his friend and help him finish Smile. Now that is as insane a notion for, for you, Anthony. It's like, I'm gonna move back to England and become prime minister. I mean, it's just, it's just absurd. I mean, it, it, there's no reality attached to it. As Darian Sahanaja said, you couldn't even talk to Brian about Smile. But I began talking to Brian about Smile in the 1990s when we did a, a, a Good Vibrations box set. It was a 30-year anniversary of the Beach Boys' first top 10 hit. And record companies always looking for anniversary excuses to, to, to put out box sets. And... Uh, Andy Paley and I had worked on the track listing and I took it to Brian's to go over it with him. And there was one song he asked to take off. Uh, he says, I sound like a girl on that song. Take it off. Okay. If it bothers you that much, we'll take it off. And I said, you know, Brian, between the single good vibrations and the single heroes and villains, there's this giant void. I said, there's, you know, you worked on the smile, smile music for six, seven months. It's not represented here. And he said, what do you have in mind? I said, I think we should take some of the songs that are closest to completion and, and put them here. It's not finishing smile. It's just in, the, in this retrospective of your career with the Beach Boys. It fits in. And he said, OK, what songs? And I started Surf's Up, Wonderful Cabin Essence etc. I purposely didn't mention Smile. And Capitol Records was over the moon at the notion that it was going to have Smile music, because if you're going to publicize a box set, that's a pretty good uh, thing to hang your hat on the first official release of Smile music. I think there's close to 30 minutes of, on disc two and maybe some sessions on disc five. So that broke the ice. Smile music was released and the world didn't come to an end. It's not that I thought that was the that was it, but that was all, I figured, okay, mission accomplished. But I also remember one day or one evening at Brian's house 
while my late wife and Melinda were in another room talking, I had typed up, not typed up, I had written the name of all the smile tracks on three by five index cards. And Brian and I sat at the kitchen table or stood at the kitchen table and tried to sequence it to no avail. I mean, it just, none of it made it, it just didn't make sense. So the ice had been broken, to, that it was part of the world. Um, in 2000, at a Christmas party, by which time we had we had made a, a deal with TNT and Radio City Entertainment to, to produce a Brian Wilson tribute in March of, of 2001, uh, we're at uh, Scott Bennett's house for, for a Christmas party, and, and, and Eva and Brian are sitting at the piano, uh, on the piano bench with their back to the piano, and and, and Brian says to Eva, what do you want for Christmas? And without blinking, she says, for you to play heroes and villains. She's pretty bold. And he turns around and starts playing it. And everybody, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. Everybody in the house comes running because they recognize it's Brian Wilson's piano style. And they cannot believe he's playing the song. And so when it's finished, it's like, okay, Brian, you've got to play that at the tribute. And he goes, okay. And the band learned it. They also learned Surf's Up, which was performed magnificently by Vince Gill, Jimmy Webb, and David Crosby. We had the Boys Choir of Harlem perform Our Prayer. So the night had three smile pieces in it, and Brian started to add those to his touring. So that's a long answer to your question, Anthony. Did I feel like I have a, a hand in it? So I was there in a way that... Here's, here's the simple answer. When Brian was surrounded by people who loved him and loved his music and weren't concerned whether it was commercial or not, but just believed in it, that it was important that the, that music be heard, that he was willing to do it. And he felt that all throughout the reconstruction of Brian Wilson Presents Smile, mm -hmm. uh, the rehearsals for it, the making of the documentary. Um, you know, if you go to YouTube, Somebody has posted a really good quality link of, of, the, of the film I made, Beautiful Dreamer. And, and I stumbled across it recently. And I said, two hours? The film wasn't two hours. So I clicked on it. And after the credit roll, somebody has grafted on an interview that I did with Brian right after his first UK tour. And in that interview, I'm asking about, I don't remember what the question was, but he says something like, well, on a scale of, of, of one to 10, I give Pet Sounds a three and Smile a 10. Wow. And yeah, exactly. And okay, so an album that's consistently in the top five, if not top two of greatest albums of all time. And then of course the question is why is it? Well, David, it's like, David, you're an idiot. It's happy music. Pet Sounds is depressing. It's, <laughs> it's sad. You know, I, I write about, I refer to it as his, his emotional autobiography. It's a pretty sad story. I just mm. wasn't made for these times. Hang on to your ego. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, Caroline, no. Yeah. You know, it's it's not a, it's not a happy autobiography at that point. Smile mm. does just what it's supposed to do. It makes you smile. You said something in the book where you you and Eva were watching uh, him after that performance, and that you almost saw like something leave, like some. Not almost. You did. You, you both saw something at the same time. So I'm 
after after this performance, the first performance of, of Brian Wilson presents Smile is over. He gets the longest ovation I think of his career. It, it just went on and on and on. And in the movie, if you watch that scene, he he stands back. He tries to stop the audience. He goes, "Hold it, hold it!" Like, okay, enough. And they, the audience just gets louder. And he steps back, and there's a deep sigh. And Somewhere after that sigh, I don't remember what was immediately or 30 seconds later, I see, I have a hallucination, I think, of what looked like demons leaving his head. Mm. And I turned to Eva and I said, did you see that? And she goes, yeah, what did you see? I said, you tell me first. <laughs> and and, wow. and we, we, we both saw the same thing, which is why when I interviewed Brian for the film after London, I said, Brian, did you feel like the demons had left you? And he said, yes. And he repeated it in other interviews. And, you know, our, our smile cult from, from the 70s believed that once he finished it, he'd be free to make great new music, which is what happened. And, and so it was, you know, a series of dreams come true. I was working music retail at the time that the Smile album came out. And I, I can remember people's reactions to getting that music and hearing that music and having the experience, you know. And it's almost like it had the same sort of cleansing effect on listeners as it did on the performer. You know, for, for old time fans, certainly. Yeah. Um, I think I wrote you know, very, very few things in life live up to expectations, let alone exceed them. Mm. And, I, and I think that's, that's why it's still a goosebump experience to talk about, listen to, watch the movie, watch him do it. Because he just became Brian Wilson again in front of our eyes. Wow. And how do you, how do you quantify that? How do you, mm. you know, and, and so the CD was, was, was the physical evidence of it. Right. Um, we, we recorded the entire concert we, for, for several nights and, and edited it all together. It's, it's never been seen publicly, um, but once. It, in it, it, in, in um, 2019, there was an event at UCLA um, I established uh, in Eva's memory a, a scholarship fund for Brian, the, the, the Brian Wilson Scholarship for composing, arranging, and producing popular music. And we had an event where Brian was there and we introduced the first scholarship recipient and friends and family were there. And to make an event out of it, uh, you know, I did an interview with Brian and, and Probe and Gregory from his band, but we showed that concert. It's the only time it's ever been seen. Because we never we never finished editing it. This was a low resolution, unmixed version of it, and on a big screen in front of four hundred people. And afterwards, Brian was like, "That was really great." <laughs> it's like, okay, and 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 Melinda said, "We got to get that out there." So you know, yes, we do got to get that out there. Um, but but you know, Brian loved playing Smile Live. I mean, he just it just it just made him joyous. So I don't remember who asked the question, you know, is he happy? The playing smile made him happy. Yeah. David, That's that was so nice to beautiful. hear. 
Um, you know, you talked about the joy that talking about Smile brings people and, and your story there at times was really bringing a very joyous tear to my eye. So thank you for that. And thank you thank for sharing. You, Anthony. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I'm, uh, you know, people have accused me of, is it pronounced hagiography or hagiography? Um, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll accept the uh, accusation. I, I, I love him. I love the music he's made. I love the feeling his music has imbued in me and, and, and millions of people around the world. Um, it, it's just, stunning to have been by his side for a lot of the great moments uh, a lot of a lot of moments that had nothing to do with with public consumption that that you know I, I write about in the book like the, the the Japanese driver who 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 spoke very little English but he said to Brian your music makes my heart soar and I don't know what is there a I, yeah, I wrote a, a book that's over 450 pages, but that's the best description I've ever heard. That's <laughs> yeah, great. That's amazing. You know, David, there are a handful of times when I've gone to concerts and just felt absolutely euphoric. You know, we often talk about in this podcast when Anthony and I saw Sparks this year coming out of the pandemic, it was very euphoric, right? When I saw um, Leonard Cohen, it was very euphoric. But there is nothing like the time I saw Brian Wilson. I, I can't describe it. I can't explain it to anybody unless you were physically there. It was like his ovation at the end was at least 10 or 15 minutes. And you just, it's one of those times that you just saw a performer live that you felt generally great for the, for the artist, right? Not, oh my God, I saw this great concert, right? It's reversed. You're like, I feel triumphant for the artist. And I think that him having that sort of as a transformative experience, really in many ways, ways, uh, and this is gonna sound crazy, but I think it saved um, songwriting and pop music in, in America in, in early 2000s, because since Smile came out, and I was, on, I was doing radio at the time, um, and a lot of indie college radio stations were playing Smile, right? You're playing R.E.M., you're playing like Nirvana and all this stuff, and you're playing Smile, right? And that really brought him to this younger generation of artists now, you know, that see him as this like prolific songwriter and that has influenced them. And I don't think without Smile, you wouldn't have this new round of artists and musicians that cite him as an influence and have used his influence to sort of channel their own creativity. I don't think that happens without Smile. Even with, even songwriters that are a little older like me i mean it's it, like he, that whole thing was a huge influence on me i mean even before the music before then too but uh i think you know there's a lot of bands yeah that have through the years just reached reached back into that vault and found such genius um and uh, really did like that's a great point though Rob that you made about the 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 newer generation of songwriters that felt that way because of Smile. Well, it's you know imagine going to the Sistine Chapel, and you happen to be there on the day Michelangelo is there. You know, <laughs> you know it's it, Rob. You experienced the visitation. We didn't get to see Gershwin live. We certainly didn't get to see Mozart or Beethoven or Bach. In, in, in performance. And there's the guy. There's um, the guy, yep. 
and and he has survived to to bring to us you know he didn't think of smile when he started working on smile it wasn't going to be okay this is the greatest album i'm ever going to make and then i'll stop it was just like this is the next step and i didn't write i didn't understand it when i wrote it when he when he said smile is a, a teenage symphony to god and i think what connects with with people whether they know the myth or not is there's something awfully spiritual in his music there's something otherworldly that hits you whether you, whether you heard i get around or or anything else it's it's got it's got it's got nothing to do with the beach boys it has to do with the fact that this man is presenting this body of music in in, in a way that it makes no logical sense and yet there he is doing it with this devoted group of musicians and infused there's so much feeling when they play yeah because it's not only what rob that that's not the only time that's happened right because that happens every show i've been to a bunch of them and the same reaction from the audience you can feel the audience not just rooting for him but like it's like a back it's like a give and take of this whole experience it's a thank you it's a group hug yeah it's 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 we we love what you did for us all these years and we want to we want to we want to show our gratitude and and cuz some shows aren't great some nights he's he's not he's just not there in the way the way you would expect him to be or want him to be but um if you get a good one it's you know it's even a, a higher bar it's like oh my god he was great tonight yes but he's not great in the way you know you're not in vegas seeing rod stewart put on a show he doesn't put on a show the closest he's come to doing that, I think, is the Live at the Roxy CD, where he's very comfortable in a small room and there's a lot of friends mm-hmm. and family there and he's making jokes. And I mean, he 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 really, um, you know, he's been surrounded by the love of his musicians, his band, and that has lifted him up to the place where he could give to us as the audience uh, what we wanted. Do you think after the experience of, of everything you went through with the Beach Boys and Mike Love, that the fact that he's playing now with a band that he likes, um, do you think that is sort of become emphasized and there's a giant exclamation point on his happiness because he's, he went through this whole thing with the Beach Boys? Do you think that that's sort of an exhale from that? You know, he he loves touring, which is the strangest thing in the world to say about Brian Wilson. Um, <laughs> he he loves being around his his band. He loves hearing his music played as beautifully as they do. He loves the re- audience reaction. He loves a, a good room service steak. But but you know, in general, what what he's done is he's changed the live Beach Boys who now have a great band and a great song selection and sometimes they have an orchestra. So the Beach Boys live are better now than they had been. So it, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, response. It's like, oh, he's really raised the bar. We're, we're, we're not just going to go out there and do, you know, 90 minutes of hits. We're, we're going we're gonna to give the, the audience some deep cuts too. That yeah. makes me feel better because I'm seeing the Beach Boys in a couple of weeks and I was kind of apprehensive about what I was going to get. 
well, let me know if my my description is <laughs> correct. I have I have not I have not gone to see them since Carl passed away. I just yeah, I've been, yeah. It, yeah. It's, just, it's just not something I could bring myself to. And today today is uh, Dennis's birthday. Uh -huh. Today we're we're recording this. Dennis had Brian's ability to put feeling into music, which is why his songs uh, are so powerful. He just didn't have the discipline to put his career first, mm. which, which was unfortunate. He could have had a solo career. He, cause he, his magnetic personality, I mean, just had so much charisma. If he had been the lead singer of the beach boys, they, they would have been like the stones. If he had been the front man. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but um, to have a career, to start a career, you have to build your name up. So was he going to go on a tour of, you know, 500 seat clubs and, and then thousand seaters and then 3000 seaters and keep making albums and keep doing this with no guarantee of what was going to happen. Mm. Or was he going to return to kind of the safe Harbor of being mm. the beach boys? And, and unfortunately he made to me the wrong decision. One of the things in your career that I think is really interesting is that you have brought people that are gone back to life in a new and interesting way. What, Thank you. what you did with Ricky Nelson, for example, the James Brown documentary, um, John Lennon, you sort of have taken these people that are figures in music that are sort of like larger than life in their imagery and, and where they are in public consciousness and sort of brought them back to earth. For me, I'm glad you did the Ricky Nelson project because um, I think... He's no Brian Wilson, but I think Ricky Nelson is painfully under underappreciated um, now. But uh, I'm just sort of wondering, do you feel like you are on a mission to sort of like bring these people back and into the public consciousness and into the conversations? Yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, I, when I started making retrospective documentaries in the 90s, um, I did a whole series of them for, on pre-rock and roll people as well. Sinatra, Dean Martin, Rosemary Clooney, comedians like Jonathan Winters, people who I thought, you know, that I loved. And and I, I, I refer to those shows kind of as father and son shows. It, it reminded me of when, when I was a kid and my father would say, come on in here, we're going to watch a Marx Brothers movie. And so I'm kind of passing, passing it down. Um, I think it's... I think what you said, Rob, is the first time Ricky Nelson and James Brown have been in the same sentence together. I, I loved hearing that. You know, as a kid, my name's David. My young, younger brother's name is, is, is Rick. So we would watch the show. And when he sang Hello, Mary Lou or Traveling Man, it was a big deal. And just because he was a TV star, he was dismissed. Um, with James Brown, you know, I have a, a real political bent. And the John Lennon film and the James Brown film gave me a chance to, to tell stories in a sense had nothing to do with who these artists were creatively, but had everything to do with what they represented and, and what they did that was important outside um, of, of their, their musical career. Uh, and those, those I'd, I'd be happy to make more of those films uh, in terms of resurrecting great artists. I'm just finishing a film on the rock and roll hall of famer Dion, who is, he has one of the great stories of all time and is one of the great storytellers of all time. I mean, it's just staggering. You know, I, I was after him for years to do this film and 
I finally, we were having lunch and I was telling him why he didn't get on the plane with Buddy Holly. And he said, no, David, that's not what happened. I'm the only one who was in the room that night who knows why I didn't get on the plane. And I said, exactly. Mm. And that's why we need to make this documentary. And he says, he says oh, you got me. Wow. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Um, but 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 I you know I have I teach a course at UCLA called uh, Songwriters on Songwriting and I bring t- to the classroom on a weekly basis legendary songwriters when I can get them or sometimes contemporary songwriters but I have had Burt Bacharach, Randy Newman, Jimmy Webb, Lamont Dozier, Mike Stoller, Mac Davis. Jeff Barry, Barry Mann, and Cynthia Weil. And for two and a half hours, I get to ask them anything I want, and the students get to talk to them as well. Mm. And Jimmy Webb is, you know, you want to talk about somebody who should have a full-length feature documentary on him. I mean, what a remarkable career uh, he's had. And um, so I, I hope to be making more films like that. Uh, it's, it's a terrible thing to say. Um, out loud, but making the films isn't the hard part. It's it's getting the money is the hard part. Yeah, financing. Yeah, I also wanted to just your 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 two thousand film about the Bee Gees that was unbelievable. Thank you. It, it's called This Is Where I Came In. It's I, I mean I knew they had, and I'm a big fan. I knew they had such a, a huge body of work, but uh, honestly, the, I couldn't believe the amount of of albums and stuff that I didn't know about but learned about because of your movie. And again, speaking of people who have left us, it, it's just break heartbreaking. Uh, Morris died shortly a few years after the movie came out and then Robin um, and of course, of course, Andy. But um, it, it, I was watching it and I was I just was sad, but I was also happy because I couldn't just hearing them anytime you showed a clip of them live. It made me want to go Google a million live concerts. You know, <laughs> there that was just such a great documentary. Thank you, thank you. That that was a, a joy to make because uh, I love. You know, I, I've been trying to to do a project called the Killer Bees, which would be the the the, the, the Beatles, the Beach Boys, the Bee Gees, and Bob, as in wow. Dylan. Nice. Um, but but um, for your listeners at YouTube. There's the link to the DVD version of the, of the Bee Gees. This is where I came in. It runs around two hours. There's a link to the to Beautiful Dreamer, the Brian Wilson film. There's a link to the night James Brown saved Boston. Um, there's also somebody posted uh, a, a fairly decent copy of an All Star tribute to Brian Wilson, which which I wrote and, and oh. produced in in 2001 with with the great the late great Phil Ramone and my pal Chip Racklin. That was at Radio City, right? That was a Radio City musical. Right. And, yeah. and so so to be around these people and, you know, it's like, how did I do it? Oh, I was a workaholic was one reason. But but I remember I remember when I was just starting my, my, my television career in Los Angeles after my New York television career had kind of gone... And I was a, I was a PA on a on a show called Sinatra and Friends, starring Frank Sinatra. And the uh, the producer I was I was my title was production assistant, but in 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 the the layman's terms of of the business that meant gopher, go for coffee, go for lunch, right. yep, uh, 
go for whatever. I mean, it, it, it's so long ago that when, when I had the task of Xeroxing the script, I had to make 40 copies of the script. It, it was an all day job. I remember no, those days of Xeroxing well. <laughs> At any rate, I, I was the, the producer, Paul Keyes, said to me, come on, kid, we got to go over to rehearsal. And and I was so naive, I didn't know they rehearsed television shows. And we, we drive onto the Burbank Studios lot, we park, we go into the big soundstage. There's big empty soundstage, except in one corner is the Nelson Riddle Orchestra. At the podium mm-hmm. is Nelson Riddle, and standing next to him is Frank Sinatra. Mm, wow. Mr. Sinatra. And we, we pull up two folding chairs, maybe 10, 15 feet away. And Mr. Sinatra say, hey, Paul, how's it going? Good, Mr. S. How about you? Terrific. You ready for us to run the show? Yes. Downbeat, first song. I don't remember what it was. It might have been I've Got You Under My Skin, something like that. And within a minute, maybe less, what went through my head was, Okay, when I was a kid, I played trumpet for a year, but I sure don't play like those guys. (laughs) I sing. I love to sing. I even had a group for three days called David Leaf and the Twigs. (laughs) That's fantastic. But I I sure don't sing like that guy. Yeah. Um, Then I thought, this might be the coolest place in the universe at this moment. Hmm. And then my next thought was, what can I do to earn a place in this room? And what I learned, because my job was to be at the producer's side, always. And what I learned watching him was what he was doing. We didn't see the backstage disagreements. We didn't see any of that. What he was doing was putting a frame around a great piece of art and presenting it to the public, like a museum curator. And I realized... I don't know where I got that confidence, but it was like, I could do that. Mm. And I, I think that was the guide to, to, to what Rob asked me a little while ago. I think that was the guiding principle to what I did was, okay, I'm going to present a great artist. How should they be presented? That was sort of the spark really wow. for you. I think so. Wow. On that note, there's, uh, I wanted to speak specifically about the James Brown documentary. Um, A couple of shows ago for us, we were talking about controversial songs. And um, one of the things that I brought up was Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, which I think is one of the most important records ever recorded. And that's sort of a direct result of an incident that you documented in your film, The Night James Brown Saved Boston. Um, which is currently streaming on Peacock. Really? So, mm-hmm, yeah. Um, right. I, I just, I actually just discovered that this afternoon. I was uh, just kind of looking to see. I wanted to know where it was available so that I could say so on the show. And I was surprised to see that it was on Peacock. Um, Me too. I want you to talk a little bit about the incident, but also what drew you to that subject matter. Well, I knew, I knew the story of, of yeah. the concert. And I got a call from a guy named Sean Amos. Uh, you may recognize his last name. He's the son of famous Amos, the, the great cookie maker. Um, anyway, Sean called me. He was working at a company called Shout Factory. And he said, mm-hmm. hey, hey, David, would you be interested in making the film about the concert, James Brown? And I just filled in the sentence and I said, absolutely. <laughs> and what an exciting opportunity. This was just after the U.S. versus John Lennon. And we went to... Uh, VH1 uh, 
uh, who are the, who are our, our broadcast partners on on the Lennon film, and uh, Brad Abramson there said yes, provided you can have it of ready for the uh, the 40th anniversary of of Martin Luther King's assassination. We want to air it that night. Wow. And um, you know there are a lot of challenges that you don't expect. So I started, we started working on it. We started doing the research. You know, my parents were, were, had moved out to California by then. And they were always curious as to what I was working on next. So I had told my parents about it. And you know, from a different generation, they had gone to see Sammy Davis Jr. at the Copacabana. So when I showed them footage of James Brown, they were, they were impressed by, specifically by his dancing. And it's relevant because as we're negotiating with James Brown's management to do the film, on Christmas morning of 2007, the phone rings around nine o'clock in the morning and, and it's my father and he goes, hey, that guy of yours died, which is the way old people talk, right? And I go, what, what guy of mine died? What are, you, what are you talking about? He says, you know, the one who's a great dancer. And I said, James Brown? And, and, and I turned on CNN and sure enough, they were talking about James Brown's death. Well, they couldn't decide where to bury him for four months. So we, well, there was nobody to even negotiate a deal with. Finally, they, they had a funeral and we, we spoke with the, somebody who represented the estate and he liked the idea. And we now had to acquire the concert, which was not owned by the radio, uh, by the television station in Boston that had broadcast it, but they had the best copy of it. And it took months and months and a lot of money to, to pry it from their hands. Hmm. In the meantime, we're ready to start production and the Writers Guild goes on strike. I'm a member of the Writers Guild. And the good, the good news about that was, other than having to pick it every day, was that and it was sometime in the fall of 2007 that this all happened when we started production, it changed the, the course of the film, which was, okay, we're not going to, this isn't going to be a long James Brown documentary. We're going to tell this one story mm. and we're going to do it as if it's 1973 and we're looking back on something that had happened five years prior. So if you watch it, you see some of the, the all the graphic elements in it look like something that would have been done on NBC News in 2019. I, 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 that's one of the things about the film that I love the most. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And, 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 and the, the biggest thing for me in, in making the film was that it not appear that some liberal white guy was making it. <laughs> and I guess the greatest compliments I've gotten is when I've met people, like when I went on the Tavis Smiley show to talk about it, and he was surprised yeah. that I was white. That, that, that to me was the confirmation that I had accomplished what I set out to do, which was make a film um, that wasn't looking down upon the story, but was looking up at this heroic moment. Yes. And I think that's one of the most successful things about that film is that it, it captures that voice incredibly well. Reverend Al Sharpton, there's a quote in the film that I think is so amazing. Um, he says... Other black artists, and he, and he references a few people and some Motown artists, were able to cross over into the mainstream, in other words, in, into white 
society. James Brown made the mainstream crossover to us. He made us acceptable just as we were. And that's huge. And I feel like that's sort of the, the mindset behind the song. Say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud is that he was bringing white audiences to black music rather than black music, finding a way into white radio or white listeners. Yeah, he, he was, it's, it's a very astute comment from 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 Reverend Sharpton, who was extraordinarily close to, to James, and people were stunned by his both his presence in the film and and how brilliant he was in it. Mm. Um, but he, he was great, and everybody in in, in the film was great. What's uh, uh, the the flip side of that is like the people from WGBH who were well-meaning people. It's like we didn't know anything about James Brown. Yeah, I mean, it was just it was it was clear. And I guess, you know, my regret is that the film wasn't called The Night James Brown Saved White Boston, mm. because that's what he did. Wow. I'll call Peacock and tell him they need to change the title. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good idea. <laughs> You have so many credits and you've gotten awards in terms of Beach Boys related stuff, but, you know, even a Grammy for like the Pet Sounds sessions, right? I mean, it's just your career has been almost, it's like overwhelming all the amazing things you've done. Thank you. You know, it's, 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 it's maybe it's because I always looked at everything as an honor to be part of it. Yeah. But Brian, Brian, when I talked to him about what was going on at Capitol, I said, I think we should, you know, for the 30th anniversary of Pet Sounds, we should do the Pet Sound sessions. And he was like, what would it be? And I said, told him, he goes, people want to listen to all that stuff? And I was like, yeah. And so that he trusted me to do it. Yeah. Um, and all those people who were in the, in, the, in the books, in the box set, trusted me to talk to, to me about it, including Sir George Martin and Brian's best friend, Danny Hutton, and, and Paul McCartney. I mean, it's just... I had to earn that trust and, and I'm, I'm proud that I did. And it seems like you I mean you've earned it from so many really huge stars and people behind the scenes as well. When you have George Martin being interviewed in the Bee Gees documentary, I mean, that's just he has so much great insight and and things to say about that. Um, sweetest, know, just, sweetest man you could ever really? meet. Just just he should have been king of England. He had this regal bearing about him. I mean, you know, just classy beyond beyond words. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just like how I, I everything sort of seems connected in a way, you know. Well, it's it. Look, we all we all share the same passion for music. We just have different favorites, and and that's yes, that's the commonality that we're obsessive about the artists we care about, and we we buy way too many. Well, nowadays we don't have to buy anything, but that's right. Um, I've got right. you know. A, 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 a room filled with box sets and CDs and books and DVDs um, at UCLA. That's just like, I got to listen to everything again before I go. I feel, mm. I know it's like, you got to start now. I, I feel the same way. There's just things I want to read books. I have CDs. I have records. I have, when am I going to like, they're all my favorites, you know, <laughs> <laughs> where is music scholarship and academia headed? Why well, you know that's not a question I'm really qualified to answer. I teach in the music industry program at UCLA, yeah. and our program is is growing dramatically because young people want to go into the music industry, and 
the music industry today, I mean, I started teaching in, in 2010, it has changed so much in just these mm -hmm. dozen years. Um, so we have to listen to people who are much smarter than I about the contemporary music business. I'm, I'm, I'm focused more on, on what I call the renaissance that we lived through mm -hmm. in, from the mid fifties to the, to the, to the early nineties of just a staggering number of great songwriters and groups and artists that, you know, that's, that's where my focus is. But as somebody who's, you know, writing books about the beach boys and producing these amazing documentaries that future generations are seeing, right, and taking knowledge from, right? There are a ton of people in hip-hop that have seen that James Brown movie, and that's been huge for them, right? But that is, that is in itself a form of teaching another generation about music. And Absolutely. in an age, I guess I, I should have been a little more clear, but in an age of like short attention spans and fake news and sound bites and stuff, how do you present biographies or information about people that are really relevant in the, in the development of American popular music and get them interested and sort of also, how do you get the stories accurate? Like you're writing a book on the Beach Boys and there's so many people now that just, I'm gonna write a book and they write a book. So how do you, how do you keep that accurate? How do you keep it fair? And sort of how do you keep it going so that you can write about these artists that are important and get new people to discover them? There's about four questions in there. In terms of, in terms, I know I'm, I'm in, terms of, yes. in terms of the classroom, uh, because I, I, you know, I'm, I come from television, my classroom is like a like a, a, a TV audience. Okay. And uh, if you remember the old show Inside the Actors Studio with James Lipton, think of me as a as, as a less haughty James Lipton. Okay. And and so I come out and I do my monologue and then I introduce my guest. I have a guest every week in my classroom. Um, if it's a songwriting uh, class, it's a songwriter's either at the piano or with a guitar. If it's in my a documentary class, it's typically a, a director of the documentary or a producer that we're studying that week. In my Beatles class uh, called The Real Beatles, R-E-E-L, um, I actually interview people who either worked with the Beatles, like Peter Asher uh, or Michael Lindsay Hogg, or I uh, interview people who've worked with one of the Beatles. I'm so, coming at UCLA. I'll I'm be there take tomorrow. Every one of your yeah. classes. <laughs> you're you're welcome to sneak in the back. And I make and at the advice of my uh, fiance, the students have to turn off their electronic devices and pay attention. Excellent. Uh, so so uh, I'm. It's information and entertainment, and I'm trying to draw them into this great artistry. I'm more than anything though. I'm focused on the students understanding that their dreams can come true. These are the smartest kids in the country, many of them coming from you know overseas. Brilliant, brilliant kids. And the last week of my documentary class, I will show Beautiful Dreamer, Brian Wilson, and the story of Smile. And all, all quarter long, I will, we have talked about a film before we watch it. We'll do an interview with the director. I say, we're going to watch this one without any comment, and then I'll tell you about it afterwards. And then after that, after they've seen the film, I then tell them my story. And I say, when I was your age, I had this dream. And it, it only took me 33 years to realize it. But the, the point is that if you're determined, if you're disciplined, if you're dedicated, if you're determined, what I call the four Ds, you can you can make your dreams come true. Most of my students aren't going to make 
documentaries or become songwriters. They're certainly not going to become Beatles. But the greatest gratification I get is when I get an email from a student who just graduated from law, uh, from medical school saying, just wanted to let you know, Professor, your class was really inspiring. Oh, man. That's and and awesome. so I'm, I'm trying to teach wow. them about real life at the same time. Uh, you know, as I say at the first day of class, this is not organic chemistry, guys. You're going to be listening to music and watching music films and hearing living history from the people who did it. Mm. And, and um so that's my methodology and, and uh, everything's recorded. And uh, so, so the body of classes will live on forever, too, for those who want to research it. Yeah. And that's such a I, I love it because it's music and is so inspiring. And, you know, yes, your students aren't all going to become musicians, producers, whatever. They're, they're going to do whatever field that they go into, but it can inspire them to do whatever career they choose you know it can be that inspiring that's what music can do people think it's blasphemous when i say music is my religion but mm -hmm. it it uh somebody said it bypasses the brain and goes straight to the heart and how many things do that in a positive way right yeah. and and i think uh chocolate and music <laughs> <laughs> chocolate and music i think that about sums it up so, David, is there any last thing that you'd like to say before we let you get back to your busy schedule? The only thing I'll, I'll suggest uh, is that people either buy the book and or give it as a Christmas gift. This is this is the yep. time of year where you're trying to think, what should I get somebody? And if there's a music lover in your life, this is this is a story they should know. Yes. It's a story of redemption, uh, of artistic renaissance, of, of somebody coming back against all the odds. And, and triumphing. Yeah, I, I just thought it was a wonderful read and I love it. And yes, I agree with everything you said. Thank you. David, thank you so much for spending this time with us yeah. and having this amazing discussion. I, I just sat, you know, just I was wrapped around every word that you were saying. I just I had such a great time listening to your stories. Thank you, sir. It's my, my pleasure to talk about this, as, as you can hear, and, and, and you mm -hmm. guys can see, the, the listeners can't, but um, I, I love talking about this. I love doing it, and uh, Rob, hopefully nothing will stop me anytime soon. Good. Yeah, keep doing it. <laughs> we thank you. It was just so enlightening and wonderful and, and, and make me happy. It made me happy. Yeah. yeah, this was fantastic. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today, David. This was really, my, really interesting. My pleasure. We'll have to come back and do this another time. Oh, I yes. would love that. This was the highlight of the day. I can tell you that. I got to get back to work. Oh. Well, thank, thank you again, thank you so much. So thank nice you, to meet you. Nice to meet all of you. Thank you. We'll talk Stay again soon. Take care. Have, right. have, have a good holiday. Oh, yes. thank you, too. you too. You too. Take thank care, you. David. Bye now. Bye. You know what now is a good time for? It's time for a promo for the Cosmic Pizza Podcast. The Cosmic Pizza Podcast, you say? Hmm, that sounds delicious. What is that? It's a delicious slice of life. In every episode? In every episode, where we talk about conspiracy theories, cartoons of our childhood, Star Trek quizzes, movies that we've liked, pod racing, general pop culture, fantasy recasts. But what we don't talk about is pizzas. Right here on the ESO Network. Well, that was really good. Holy shit. Love him. Oh, my God. Uh, Rob, sure. that was a good get. That was a good Yeah, he get. was amazing. And amazing. he's so nice. I'm going to be in L.A. in February. Yeah. Oh, are you going uh, to Galley? 
Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Bastard. Um, so I'm, I might see if he's willing to, you know, just for 10 minutes, me say hey and shake his hand. And Oh, I'm sure yeah. he would love it. You could probably sit in on a yeah, class. We're going, we're going I want to audit a class. Well, yeah, definitely audit a we're class. We're going in oh, April. So, yeah, I'm there for two weeks in April. So I'm... All right. So, Stephanie, where can people find more about you on the Internet? You can find me on my Bandcamp page just under Stephanie Seymour. You can find me at my website, therearebirds.com. You can find me on Facebook at Stephanie Seymour Music and on Instagram at there underscore are underscore birds and all streaming platforms like Spotify and stuff. <laughs> A-dubs. All right. As always, you can find me on the Watchers in the Fourth Dimension podcast, where we are watching our way through the entirety of Doctor Who from 1963 until now. We have just kicked off season 13, so another classic Tom Baker season. And you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, Amazon, wherever you like to get your podcasts, including, in all likelihood, wherever you're listening to this one. We're also on social media at at Watchers4D on Facebook, Instagram, and unfortunately still Twitter. And if anyone wants to follow me on a personal level, you can find me on Instagram at at Englishman in ATL. All right, Rob. So you can find me on Facebook and, as Anthony said, uh, for now, Twitter and post at Rob underscore Levy. Um, you can find all my all my socials there. Um, I also am uh, involved with the NeedCoffee.com Weekend Justice podcast. And you can hear me on the radio uh, every Wednesday from 7 to 9 Central on Juxtaposition on KDHX. Um, if you have things to do or you want to listen later, it's okay. All the shows are archived for two weeks, and you can listen to it at your leisure at kdhx.org. And you can find me at cosmicpress.com, K-O-Z-M-I-C press.com, where you can take a look at all the books that I've written, the books that I've published by other authors, and all the podcasts that I do. So thanks so much. This has been a great year. So thanks. Hope you'll join us again next year. Have a great holiday season, and we will see you around the bend. Take care and keep rocking on. Thank you, everyone. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the T Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.